Good morning, church. Please turn in your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 18 this morning. Uh, and go ahead and mark verse 15. We're going to be in verses 15 through 30 this morning. I was unaware that it was the Schaefer's last Sunday. I knew it was coming up. I did not know today was the day. I did not plan on putting any of that into my sermon, but holy smokes. That is incredibly encouraging, but also discouraging as, uh, as I get up here this morning. Uh, you guys, um, you know, we think about, there's people who leave churches all the time, and, uh, and not that you guys are leaving our church, you guys are, you guys are moving and following God's will for your life, and for that we're excited, but, um, you know, I thought it might be easier for, uh, it, you know, for, for a case like this rather than a case where someone just gets mad and leaves, you know, that hurts, that typically hurts. But this, you guys have meant so much to us. Your family has, has been um, such an instrumental part of this church and this family. I, I, I think about ways in which you guys have um, we, wept with those who, who are weeping and, and come along and served families that are hurting. And um, just, just, just the just how authentic you guys are and how genuine you are, how much you love the Lord, how much you've loved this body. And, and, and on the days where, where, where I have struggled to love this body, you guys, you guys have been encouraging to me. And uh, I'm great, greatly encouraged by your friendship and greatly encouraged by your uh, example in Christ Jesus of hospitality and joy. And uh, thank you. Thank you so much for the way you've served us, served us well. We, uh, we greatly uh, pray that God would Bless your efforts and bless your business and bless, bless your ministry and your family going forward. We love you guys. Um, not only do I love the Schaefer family in a far different and less important way, I love Disney World. I do. And, and I'm sorry, to, 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 to get away from the emotional, I have to switch to a little bit of humor, and I'm sorry, so that's the only way to, to, to transition completely. Um, I, I do love Disney World. I know when I tell people that I love Disney World, most men roll their eyes because they don't love Disney World. It's okay. We go to, we go to Disney World typically once a year. It's coming up in September. We go to Disney World mainly because Daddy likes going to Disney World and the rest of the kids love Disney World. Mommy doesn't love it as much as Daddy, but that's okay. But this year, they've celebrated the 50th anniversary of the Magic Kingdom. And if you know anything about the Magic Kingdom, it is a kingdom. It is the kingdom of Mickey Mouse. You, you go in there and you see a castle and you, and you see a culture and you see you know shrines to Mickey and you see characters everywhere and... What, what, I, what I've noticed is that, it's, that people say that it's supposed to be the happiest place on earth. So they say. Have you ever been there? It doesn't feel like the happiest place on earth. I mean, if you, even if you love it like me, it doesn't feel like the happiest place on earth. And, and, I, and, I, and I walk around and I, and I wonder why. And in fact, at the end of the day, at the Magic Kingdom, like as much as we love, much we plan for it, much as we anticipate for it, at the end of the day of the Magic Kingdom, I'm talking after the fireworks. We're dragging around, you know, eight kids. I'm like, I, I cannot wait to get back to the hotel room. Why? This is what we signed up for. This is what we planned for. You know, as a, as a, as a father, we, we go to the, we spend months planning for this trip. We, we, we see the website and we see all the smiling faces. We see the rides we're going to ride. We see all this, that, and the other. And we, we talk with the kids about Star Wars and all this fun stuff. And then, you know, not, you don't just see it. You don't just plan for it. You actually pay for it. You pay a ton of money. I mean, you think about all this the, the, that you've worked for all year the, to earn the thousands and thousands of dollars that it costs to go to Disney World for a week. And you're like, I'm saving all this money. I'm earning all this money. I did it. I'm, I'm paying for it. And, I, and I'm, and I'm going to buy this big old ticket to go there. And it's going to cost a lot of money. we pay a hefty price. We buy the tickets. We, we enter into Disney World completely on our own merit. Like, I bought this ticket. Wasn't given the ticket. I mean, maybe the kids were given the ticket, so the kids can always enjoy the kingdom. It's the fathers who walk around, who paid the money. 
or the moms who paid the money and, and, and they walk around the kingdom and, and we walk around the, the magic kingdom within, in a very entitled manner. We, we walk around thinking that we, we, I, I don't deserve to stand in this line. I don't deserve the heat. I don't deserve the attitudes. I don't deserve the expensive food. I, I don't deserve any of this stuff. Because I paid for it. I did it. I, I earned it. Therefore, we walk around grumpy in the kingdom of Mickey. Entrance paid for by our own dollars that we earned on our merit. That is that kingdom. The kingdom of God is not like that. And that is what we will talk about this morning. I hope to contrast the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God this morning. As we turn to Luke 18. This is an interesting passage of scripture. It's an interesting passage of scripture where Jesus interacts with people and their children. Followed up with an interaction between Jesus and a wealthy young ruler. And one of the interesting things about this passage of Scripture is that these two encounters, Jesus encountering these children and Jesus encountering this rich young ruler, these encounters are all found in, in, in all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Not only are these Two encounters found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These two encounters are also always connected one after the other. The story of the children followed by the story of the rich young ruler. And when we see two seemingly very different stories presented together by three different authors, we must ask, what are the authors telling us here? What does Jesus' interaction with a bunch of parents and their kids have to do with Jesus' interaction with a wealthy young ruler? What is the main message that Jesus was portraying to his disciples in these passages of Scripture? I believe the main message is this, main point of, of the sermon this morning. If you're taking notes, feel free to write this down. Main point is this. Entrance into God's kingdom is marked by the rejection of self-sufficiency, the casting away of idols, and the reception of God's greater reward. Entrance into God's kingdom is marked by the rejection of self-sufficiency, the casting away of idols, and the reception of God's greater reward. And with that, let's read Luke 18, 15 through 30. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them, and when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Uh, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. 
And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Main point, entrance into God's kingdom is marked by the rejection of self-sufficiency, the casting away of idols, and the reception of God's greater reward. Point one this morning, church. Entrance into the kingdom of God is not something we earn, but something we receive. Entrance into the kingdom of God is not something we earn, but something that we receive. As we begin with verse 15, we see that the crowds were now bringing their infant children, infants, to see Jesus so that so that he would lay hands on them. Now, from a, from a cultural standpoint, this was a, a common way for, for rabbis and scribes to bless individuals. In fact, the parallel accounts in Mark and Matthew both mention that Jesus' laying of hands or touching of the children was in reference to offering a, a, a blessing or a prayer for the children. An Old Testament example of such a blessing that that might have influenced this practice can be found in in Genesis chapter 48. In Genesis 48, we find the patriarch Jacob at the end of his life, sitting with his son Joseph after many decades of being apart. As Joseph sits with his father in his his deathbed, Jacob asks Joseph to bring his two sons close so that Jacob could bless his children. In that moment, Jacob places his right hand on one child's head and he places his left hand on another child's head and and proceeds to bless each one. In this scene in Luke chapter 18, these parents are placing their infants before Christ to receive the blessings of Jesus. However, these parents bring their children before Jesus, the disciples step in. They got parents, they're coming, they got kids, they're they're coming in droves to Jesus and placing their, you know, we want his blessing. The disciples step in and start rebuking the crowds. Apparently, the disciples felt as though they were the gatekeepers who had a responsibility. Responsibility to judge whether or not someone was worthy to come before Jesus. Perhaps in that moment, the disciples did not feel as though these parents and their children were important enough to stop Jesus in the midst of his day, as if Jesus had more important things to do, like spend time with them. The text doesn't exactly lay out the disciples' motivation for rebuking the parents, but we know that children in general were not a valuable part of their society. Now, lest lest we look down on their society, we can confidently say that children aren't a valuable part of our society either. As a father of nine children, I cannot begin to tell you the amount of comments people make to my wife and me regarding the number of children that the Lord has blessed us with. Without fail, we can head to the pool. We can head to dinner. We can go to any other public area and we can find people who ask very personal questions such as, don't you know what causes that? Don't you have a TV? Is this your last one? Etc. You get the point. And immediately following these questions comes the long list of praise for me and my wife. Strangers are quick to tell us that we must be extra patient, extra wealthy, have an extra calling from the Lord, or extra Catholic in order to have this many kids. Now, I do not bring up this example to highlight our convictions or to highlight our character. Bring it up for that point. Nor do we desire your praise or sympathy. I bring these comments and questions up to point out that this is typically how society views children. Children are viewed as nuisances and problems. 
Children are viewed as people that hold us back in life from where we really want to go and what we really want to do. Children are viewed as loud and disruptive and needy and hungry and and sleepy and energetic and messy. That's their view in our culture. That's it. Children aren't viewed as people made in the image and likeness of God. Their dignity is not recognized. The biblical notion that children are a blessing from the Lord would appear to be false if one were viewing it from the standpoint of what our culture thinks about children. In fact, by God's grace, we are exiting the season in our nation's history where federal law unilaterally protects the right of a mother to kill her unborn child. However, the federal laws of the past 50 years have led to the deaths of 64 million children by abortion. This doesn't account for the likely tens of millions more that have been aborted by the morning after bill. While most in the church do not support the murder of unborn children, their general attitude towards children tends to be apathetic at best. Noisy children in a worship services are they're viewed as disruptive to what is really going on. Ministry to children in the nursery or on Wednesday nights is often viewed as a civic duty more than an opportunity to joyfully proclaim the gospel to unregenerate but listening ears. Fathers will give countless hours of their lives in a given week to disciple adults in the church, but struggle to find the will and the time to disciple their own children. I must confess that even though we have nine children, we are not any different than any parent in this church or outside of it for that matter. We think children are loud and disruptive, frustrating at times, and needy. We constantly have to remind each other that children are a blessing from the Lord. Why? Because we don't always see children the way Jesus sees children. Too often... We see children the way that the disciples saw children. The disciples saw children as a distraction from the real ministry. Jesus saw the children as the real ministry. The disciples told the children to flee. Jesus said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. Can I remind us something of... It's probably very plain and obvious as you read through the Gospel of Luke just for a moment, church. These weren't Jesus' children. They weren't Jesus' children. Jesus was a single man in his early 30s who had an upbringing in carpentry. His closest friends were a bunch of blue-collar fishermen. Let's just say that Jesus was a man's man. He was a man's man. Jesus is the epitome of masculinity. And Jesus loves children. Men in the church, do you want to be more like Jesus? Pray that he would give you a heart that loves children. And in this story, Jesus gives an imperative here. He he commands the disciples to give the children unrestrained access to himself. This Greek word here is Koluete, it means to restrain. King Jesus didn't want anyone holding these children back from being brought to him. Oh, bring these children to hear the gospel. Bring these children for prayer. Bring these children to be ministered to. It doesn't matter how little society valued children, King Jesus values them. May Community Bible Church see children the way Jesus sees these children. In fact, may may we not just see children the way Jesus sees children. May we see widows and orphans, the poor, the marginalized, the helpless, the sick, the hurting, the messy, the broken, and the outwardly sinful as Jesus sees them. As people in need of the love and mercy of Jesus. May we pursue them. May we not in any way restrain them from hearing the good news of the gospel, church. May we welcome the mess. 
May we welcome the work. May we welcome the ministry, knowing this, that Jesus ministered to messy and difficult people like you and like me. However, the goal of this scene isn't primarily to provide Christians a treatise on Jesus' love for children. Instead, I believe this passage in Luke 18 centers around a much larger topic, and that is the kingdom of God. So let's proceed, church, and take a look at what Jesus has to tell us about the kingdom. The first thing that Jesus tells us about the kingdom in verses 15 through 17 is that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these little children. In fact, Jesus' desire to have children approach him is not rooted in how adorable they are or how cute that they are. Instead, Jesus roots the call for the children to be brought to him in the fact that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. What does Jesus mean by this? Is Jesus saying that all children are a part of the kingdom of God? Is Jesus pointing to an age of accountability where a young person finally becomes accountable for their sin before God? Is this a call to baptize your unbelieving kids or treat them as covenant members of the faith? Not at all. Let me be clear. Not at all. While many have errantly made such claims, we can better understand that what Jesus means by looking at verse 17. In verse 17, Jesus says this. He says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. We might notice here that Jesus says, Truly I say to you. Whenever Jesus says, truly, our our ears need to perk up and pay close attention to what Jesus is saying. It's as if Jesus is saying, listen, listen, everybody listen. You may have kind of dozed off for a bit, but but I want you to hear something, everybody. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, truly, truly. This This is of extreme importance. And as Jesus is getting their attention, he begins to discuss what is required of one who would enter the kingdom of God. Must. Must. Requirement. Specifically, they must receive it like a child. Now, logically, the first question we might ask when we hear Jesus say such a thing is, what does it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a child? Is Jesus talking about childlike faith here? Now, I suppose it means what you mean by childlike faith, but I would say that the passage doesn't highlight, commend, or even mention the infant's faith here. In the context here, I think Jesus is pointing to the way that these children are receiving the blessings of Jesus and using them as an example to how all kingdom members receive the kingdom. So let's consider how these children received Jesus' blessings in this scene. First, let's keep in mind that verse 15 specifically highlights that these children were indeed infants. There's a difference between the Greek word for just child and the Greek word for infant. This is the Greek word for infant. They were young babies. They didn't see Jesus walking by and decide on their own volition to hop out of their mother's hands and verbally request spiritual blessings from Jesus the Messiah. Didn't happen that way. No, like every other baby in the history of these world, in the history of the world, these infants were focused on only a handful of things. They were either hungry, they were tired, or they were hungry and tired. They weren't searching for eternal life. They weren't searching for holiness. They weren't searching for blessings. In fact, even if these infants did want blessings from Christ, they had no way of receiving them on their own. They couldn't even approach Jesus and communicate with him on any meaningful level. These infants are like every single one of us before coming to Christ. We weren't seeking after him. We were concerned with our own glory our own desires, and feeding our own bellies. We had no longing for God, and we had no ability to earn God's favor or love. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 paints this picture of us, where Paul writes, And and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Apart from Christ, that is us. These infants in Luke 18 had no ability or desire to come to Jesus. Instead, these infants being brought 
to Jesus was based on Jesus' call for them to come near to him. They weren't blessed because they had anything to offer. They didn't appeal to their value, their worth, their intellect, or inherent usefulness to Jesus. Rather, they were blessed because Jesus chose to bless them. Nothing more and nothing less. Their blessing was based on Jesus' kindness, not their intrinsic value. And this is how we receive the kingdom of God like children. By actually receiving it. We don't purchase it. We don't influence our way into it. We aren't voted in. We don't pass a test. In fact, we must understand that there is nothing we have and nothing we could do that could possibly gain us access to God's kingdom apart from simply and humbly receiving it. And we receive it because God, in his loving kindness, offers it to us free of charge, but paid for by the blood of Christ. This is what it means for the kingdom of God to belong to such as these children. It means that the kingdom belongs to those who humbly and simply receive it, knowing that they didn't gain access by their own merit or effort. On the flip side, as we see in the case of the rich young ruler, those who rely on their own merit and performance will never, ever, ever, ever enter the kingdom of God. Point two, there is a zero tolerance policy for idols within God's kingdom. Point two, there is a zero tolerance policy for idols within God's kingdom. In contrast to the helpless babies that Jesus blessed, just blessed, Luke proceeds to tell us that a rich man then approached Jesus. Now, we don't know much about this man. The text only provides a few relevant details about him, mainly that he was rich and he was a governor of sorts. Now, this is the type of man that society would love to be associated with. People in that culture, along with individuals in our culture, they they love famous, rich, influential people. Them, along with us, admire and respect those that have influence or status. I see this quite often in in my own business. Quite often we have rappers, entertainers, athletes, business people, politicians, etc. come walk right to the front counter of my restaurant or come to the drive-thru. And to say that people respond with enthusiasm is a giant understatement. As soon as they come in, customers stop what they're doing, staff stops what they're doing, they look and they stare, They wonder, is that really him? Is that really her? Oftentimes they'll take pictures. They'll they'll want to express their gratitude for their art or whatever, whatever, whatever. Needless to say, the desire for man to associate with the wealthy and elite transcends time and culture. Well, this influential young ruler approaches Jesus and was seeking to find out what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. Let's keep in mind that this rich young ruler believed that he arrived at his station in life partly due to his ability to make things happen. He was probably type A. He was a go-getter. He was a goal-setter. Give him a bar and he would clear it. Tell him to jump. This rich young ruler would reply, how high? As this rich young ruler accrued more and more money and influence over time, the amount that he could accomplish grew exponentially. As his income grew, the list of things that he believed he he could accomplish grew. There was nothing that this young man couldn't achieve with a little hard work. And that is what it's like, friends, to be wealthy. You can buy yourself into rooms and relationships. It's easy and tempting to become reliant on your own skills, resources, and abilities. And this young ruler approaches Jesus like he would any other transactional relationship. The young man is basically trying to shore up his account and and, and hedge his bets to make sure that he obtains eternal life. He was likely confident that whatever Jesus put forth as the requirements for eternal life, that he had the ability and or resources to achieve it within himself. Surely this rich young ruler would jump through whatever hoops necessary in order to do with whatever Jesus said. 
Basically, he was self-sufficient. However, unlike the helpless children and their families that Jesus just interacted with, Jesus doesn't treat this rich young ruler with quite the same compassion. You see, the difference between Jesus and us is that Jesus can read people's hearts. We can't. We don't have that power. We try. We think we can. We don't. Jesus can. Whether it was the woman at the well or this rich young ruler, Jesus always knows the motives, heart postures, history, and ambitions of those that he interacts with. Always. Even right now, Christ knows your heart. He can see it. Jesus knew that this rich young ruler wasn't truly seeking truth from Jesus. He wasn't seeking biblical insight on how he might have eternal life. He was seeking to justify himself in his morality before Jesus. You see, this man thought much of himself. This man thought he was basically good. Therefore, Jesus questions the man as to why he calls Jesus good. It's like he's saying, I, I don't think you know what you're saying, my man. Are you confessing that I am God in the flesh or are you simply calling me good like you call all of those scribes and Pharisees and other rich people good? What do you mean here? Defining good. I don't think you understand. Only God is good. He's also saying, only, only God is good. You're not good. Yet I know your heart and you actually believe that you are good. And so Jesus proceeds to answer the man's question. And again, we must remind ourselves of the question that the rich young ruler asked. He asked, what must I do? What must I do? What must I do? You, you, I mean, you could parse this out a thousand ways. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The emphasis was on something that the young man must accomplish in order to receive eternal life. And as we talked about last week, God's plan for man was never that they would accomplish their own salvation. Never. That would be an impossible task. However, this young man felt confident in his abilities, so Jesus offers him a little test. Jesus tells the man this. He says, well, you know the commandments. Oh, okay. I mean, why are you asking me? You know the commandments, rich young ruler. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. That's what he gives them, that's what he offers him. A few of the Ten Commandments. And if, so if you know, if you're a student of the word, you know this, that, that these are five of the, of, the, of the Ten Commandments found in Exodus chapter 20. And this section of the Ten Commandments that Jesus offers has to do with, with um, how you live from a horizontal perspective. Or in other words, this section of the commandments has to do with how you love your neighbor. Okay? However, Jesus leaves out the first four commandments that have to do with loving God. Now, this is important. The first commandment is to have no other gods before God. Worship Him alone. Period. Second, God forbade His people from creating any idols and worshiping them or even serving them. Third, God tells His people not to take His name in vain. And fourth, God calls us to honor the Sabbath and to keep it holy. He leaves those out. He just appeals to these other five commandments. Now, we might remember from last week, church, that the law wasn't meant to save. If the law was used and interpreted correctly, it would, it would result in bringing about a knowledge of sin that would point to our need for a Savior. It would point to the fact that God would provide that Savior for us. It would not point to our self-sufficiency, but rather our dependency on God for salvation. However, this isn't what happens to the rich young ruler. Jesus starts preaching the law and the young man says, Nailed it! Got it! Check! Okay, that, that it? Because <laughs> this is pretty good news. If that's it, I am on my way. I, I got it. Man, high five Jesus. Because all of these things that you just talked about, I have kept from my youth. From the time I was a baby to the time, you know, all the way through my business career, all my, the way I govern, the way I treat my wife, my kids, nailed it. Never once did I violate any of these things. I'm not a murderer. Praise God. On my way. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing, isn't it? That this wealthy young man stands before the second person of the Trinity, pounds his chest, and touts his own righteousness. 
I mean, the one truly holy being walking on earth right then and there, and he touts his own righteousness. It's like the equivalent of, of, of imagine, you know, you get two middle-aged men together. One of them is Tom Brady, and the other man is a dude who played middle school pound football. And he starts talking about this one sack that he had back, you know, he got in in the fourth quarter because the team was winning, but he had that legit sack. And, and he's touting it to Tom Brady, who's won like, what, six Super Bowl rings? It's, it, it would be absolutely embarrassing for that man to, to tout his, his achievements in football compared to Tom Brady. But it, it's infinitely more embarrassing for this rich young ruler to stand before the second person of the Trinity and, and tout his righteousness, saying, I have kept your law from my youth. And the reality is the young man really actually believed this. We have no reason to believe that he was just saving face. He probably looked at his external decisions and thought he was pretty, a pretty good guy. In fact, to be wealthy in that society typically signified God's favor because of your moral decisions. He likely thought much of himself. There, was a, there is a good chance that this young man didn't engage in premarital sexual intercourse. He never robbed the vegetable carton at the town market. He never stabbed someone. His life was full of decisions that didn't get him arrested. However, God isn't primarily concerned with one's external obedience, church. God is most concerned with the heart. For instance, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, if you hate your brother in your heart, you're guilty of murder. He then goes on to say that, that if you look at a woman and you lust, you're guilty of adultery. Is he si- simply not killing someone isn't God's standard of righteousness. And in reality, we are all guilty of every single law in the word of God without fail. We're guilty of all of it. And apart from Christ, we are adulterous, murdering, dishonest, coveting, idolaters because of our sinful hearts. Before God and before the law, we all stand exposed as guilty. And it is at this point in Luke 18 where Jesus exposes this rich young ruler's heart. In his grace, Jesus exposes the young man for who he is. In response to the rich young ruler's self-righteous profession, Jesus most clearly reveals his most obvious sin, idol worship or idolatry. And Jesus does this by lovingly telling him that there is still one thing that he lacks. Jesus tells the rich young ruler to sell everything that he has and to give it to the poor. Jesus even promises this rich young ruler that he will receive heavenly treasure in return. Like, go, go sell it to the poor. You, and actually, you've you got, you got something coming to you, bro. I mean, it's not just go do it to make you feel better. You actually have a reward coming. And not only that, Jesus invites this ruler to leave his governing and to follow him. You see, Jesus knew this. Jesus knew that the man actually did have other gods before him. Money. Jesus knew that he had created an idol in his heart and served it. Money. Jesus exposed Jesus exposed that by inviting him to honor God with his wealth. You see, the problem wasn't this, that, that the man was rich. The problem wasn't that he was rich. The problem was that this man loved his money more than God. The problem was that his heart had a greater affection for money than for God. The problem is that this man found his comfort in money, not God. The problem is that this man found his identity in money, not God. The problem is that this man desired to exalt his name rather than God's name. And at its core, church, salvation is this, finding your full satisfaction in God alone. You want to know what salvation is at its core? It's not walking an aisle. It's not theological prowess. It's not joining a church, getting baptized, taking the Lord's Supper. It's not joining a small group, church attendance, not giving money. 
at its core, salvation is this, finding your full satisfaction in God alone. Yet, like the rich young ruler, we often seek to find our satisfaction in so many things other than God. We might find our satisfaction in our job or our career. We might find our comfort in our house or in our possessions. We might seek to find our identity in the way we educate our children or even in our own education or professional training. We might seek life in clean eating or drinking out of Berkey's or participating in CrossFit or a certain vitamin regimen. We might pursue our reward in high school, sports, or through academic achievement. We might even seek to exalt ourselves in ministry by seeking the praise of man. See, none of these things that we involve our lives with are necessarily bad things. However, neither was the money that the rich young ruler possessed. Yet, preferring money to God is incredibly and deeply sinful. Finding more joy in your home than Jesus is idolatry. Finding more reward in your career than in Jesus is vile in the eyes of God. You see, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian isn't that one battles with idolatry and the other doesn't. The difference is the way that a Christian and a non-Christian respond when their sin is brought before their eyes. The Christian grieves their sin, confesses it to Christ, and experiences the mercy and forgiveness that Christ offers and provides because of his work on the cross. The, The Christian desires for the Holy Spirit. He desires it. Hear me, church. The Christian, he desires For the Holy Spirit to reveal sin to them so that repentance can occur and that we would become more like Christ and honor him with our lives as a result. The Christian prays for the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts so that they can put to death the idols of the heart and find joy and pleasure and sanctification and and satisfaction in Christ alone. That's the desire of the Christian. The non-Christian, however, is made aware of their sin and they only experience the despair that comes with living under the law. They find that they do fall short of the glory of God. They might have even heard the gospel, but only receive it with sorrow because they love their sin far more than they love God. Rather than simply pleading for mercy before Christ and repenting of their sin, they try to hold on to their sin and attempt to create some alternate way to be made right with God by their own good works. They refuse to turn to Christ because they would rather have their idol. This is exactly what happened to the rich young ruler. Jesus tells him to put aside his idols and to come and follow Christ. Jesus doesn't say, just follow me and we'll sort out the rest later. Jesus says, the treasure that I offer is far better than the idol that you're clinging to. Lay down your efforts of pursuing God on your own terms. Lay down your idol and find life in me, Jesus says. See, Jesus exposes his idolatry. And he becomes very sad because he loved his idol. Friends, none of our idols are welcomed in the kingdom of God. Yet, as I mentioned, we live in a world full of potential idols, especially in this society where there is an abundance of possessions, we could be tempted to be lovers of money. And Jesus had a word for those that encountered this rich man in his despair. They're listening, they see it, and they see his despair, and, and Jesus says this, how difficult, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus says. Now we might look at Jesus' words and we might think that Jesus is exaggerating here. Maybe he's using hyperbole. However, church, I, I think we should take heed of what Jesus says. That we should take it seriously. In fact, very, very seriously here. When Jesus says that it is difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, people like us, Community Bible Church, hear me here. People like us, all of us, all of you in this room who live in the most prosperous nation in the entire world should sit up in our chairs and listen a bit. Because Jesus is talking to us. Just how difficult is it for people like us in the United States of America to enter the kingdom of God? Well, according to Jesus, there's a better chance that we could get a camel and squeeze him through the eye of a needle. We need to understand something. The average camel weighs 1,300 pounds and stands over seven feet tall. I can tell you this because Wikipedia told me that and because I've ridden a camel. Now, I am not a smart man, but I know that I already have a hard enough time putting the piece of thread through the needle. Better yet, a camel. Why would Jesus say such a thing? Why is it easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? Well, Because wealthy people love security. And following Jesus likely could result in suffering. Because wealthy people love comfort. And following Jesus likely could result in losing everything. Because wealthy people love status. And following Jesus likely could result in being defamed and hated. Because wealthy people love independence. And following Jesus is nothing but a constant state of dependence. Because wealthy people love to boast. And following Jesus leads to humility. See, to truly follow Christ is to treasure him above all else. Jesus is basically saying, those that enter the kingdom of God have nothing that they love more than me. You might be thinking, that feels like an impossibly high bar. In fact, Brian, I have a better chance of actually doing the things that the law requires than actually loving Jesus with all that I am. Give me the stuff I can do because I can better affect that. Church, how can we possibly turn these hearts that love everything that the world has to offer, to love Jesus more than all that stuff. Does it not feel impossible? It's just me. I mean, to hear such a thing, does it not feel disheartening? Does it not feel almost dreadful to know that that there is a problem that we have no solution to? That we can't possibly fix that. I can't fix my heart. You can't fix your heart. This is how those listening to Jesus felt. After several years of ministering alongside Jesus, the disciples say, "Then who, who can be saved? Who can be saved? What a question. 
What honesty. What transparency. You see, the disciples who have been following Jesus for a while now, they've seen Jesus speak against the scribes. They've seen Jesus speak against the Pharisees. And now this rich young ruler. And none of them, none of them get Jesus' stamp of approval. None of them. Are those who were highlighted as the godliest, most moral people in their society, not a single one got Jesus' approval. They all were the people who were the most appeared to be the most zealous for God in their culture. Yet none of them are good enough for Christ because they don't truly love Christ. This is what drives those listening to say, then who can be saved? Well, Jesus responds with one of the most profound and gracious and encouraging and glorious things. And glorious things that we've heard in the Gospel of Luke thus far. Jesus says this, What is impossible with man is possible with God. What is impossible with man is impossible with God. You see, Jesus looks around at those who know their works won't save them. He looks around at them, and Jesus has compassion on those who knew that they wouldn't and couldn't ever have any love of God in them. Like, he's looking around, and they're all real. I can't love God the smallest bit, not the tiniest bit. Better yet, I can't love him more than I love my wife and love my money and love myself. I can't, I can't do this, God. They knew there was nothing they could do. You see, the problem was with the rich young ruler's original question. You can't do anything to be saved. Church, hear that. We know this. A reminder. You can't do anything to be saved. It's impossible. You need a miracle. You need a work of God. That work of God is something we celebrate called regeneration. See, Jesus says it this way. In the third chapter of the Gospel of John, in verses 1 through 8, as he meets with Nicodemus, John 3, Jesus says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answers him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's a work of God. Regeneration needed to love God, is from God. It's not something we can conjure up. It's not something we can fight for. It is a work, a sovereign choice, a sovereign act of God that we need to be saved. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And you do not understand these things? What's Jesus saying? Did you read your Old Testament, bro? Did you forget it? Or did you miss it? 
Because perhaps Nicodemus, a teacher of the law in Israel, should have remembered Ezekiel 36. Where the Lord God said through the prophet Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What's impossible with man? Changing a heart, obeying, repenting. It's impossible. It's impossible with us. But it's possible with God. You might hear this and think that salvation sure seems like a very passive thing. Perhaps it sounds like it is all a sovereign and gracious work of God and nothing else. And if that's what you're thinking, friend, you're absolutely right. Our salvation, church, is purely a work of God from start to finish. It is God who elects. It is God who predestines. It is God who calls. It is God who regenerates. It is God who justifies. It is God who adopts. It is God who sanctifies. It is God who causes us to persevere. And it is God who glorifies. It is all a work of Him. Is our faith authentic? Absolutely. Because the work of God doesn't fail. Is our repentance genuine? Certainly, because the work of God doesn't fail. Is our worship, love, adoration, praise, allegiance, confidence, and perseverance that we're all called daily to pursue as Christians real? Yes, because the work of God doesn't fail. This is what Jesus means when he says, we must receive the kingdom of God like infants. This is what he means. We offer nothing, we receive everything. Finally, point three, very briefly. There was only gain for members of God's kingdom. There was only gain for members of God's kingdom. In response to this glorious truth, Peter says, See, we have left our homes and followed you. I don't know if Peter was bragging here. I don't know if he was looking for attention, affirmation, or, or confirmation from the Lord. However, I know what Peter said was true. It was true. The twelve did leave everything and followed Jesus. Peter James and John left the fishing boats and followed Christ. Matthew left the tax booth and followed Christ. Simon the Zealot left political activism and followed Christ. You see, the Lord worked in their hearts, and they left it all to follow Christ. And Peter highlights the realities of what following Jesus meant for the disciples. Following Jesus looked like having a greater allegiance to Jesus above everything else. For some, following Jesus didn't mean neglecting and walking out of your family. That's not what he's talking about here. But it meant that the decision to follow Christ, to love him above all else, resulted in their wives, parents, or children walking out on them. You see, the decision to follow Christ was a decision to find greater joy and satisfaction in Jesus than anything else. And the joy found in pursuing the kingdom of God far outshines anything that this world has to offer. In fact, Jesus promises that kingdom pursuits 
are worth it. For those whose decision to follow Christ resulted in their family walking out of them, Christ gives them new brothers or sisters in him called the church in this life. This is what a family is right now. Just, just ask the Schaefers in the back. Past few years, they've been a part of what? A church family who they've been served by and who they've served. It's real. It's tangible. It's a blessing. For those who followed Christ and lost their home, Jesus promises them an eternal home in his kingdom. And for those who followed Christ and lost their earthly lives, Jesus promises them life eternal with their king. Community Bible Church, may we rejoice that Christ has given us a glorious present and a glorious future through no effort of our own. May we joyfully respond in obedience to Christ as we cast off our idols and pursue his glorious kingdom. Amen.